Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. Hi, everyone, and welcome again to Butts and Guts. I'm your host, Scott Steele, the chairman of colorectal surgery here at the Cleveland Clinic in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. And today I'm very pleased to have Dr. Stephen Loop, who's a clinical health psychologist and associate staff for the Department of Gastroenterology within DDSI. He's also an assistant professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine of Case Western Reserve University. And today we're going to focus specifically on kind of this entire process that maybe doesn't get as much press, and that's helping patients manage during this time of a pandemic with COVID-19-induced stress. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us at Butts and Guts. Hey, happy to be here. So as a little bit of background, could you first tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, where did you train, and how did it come to the point that you're here at the Cleveland Clinic? Sure. Um, I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, and kind of gradually made my way south, did my undergraduate education in Missouri at Central Missouri State University, then became a paramedic for 10 years, actually, took a break from school. And at the end of being a paramedic, I got really into trying to understand the lifestyle and behavioral aspects of health and how, you know, I'd see patients all the time who were taking their medication and doing the right thing from a medical standpoint. But then you go look in their pantry and their pantry was stocked with Oreos and there's Coca-Cola and there's cigarettes. And I really wanted to help people change that part of it and improve health. So I went back to graduate school at the uh, Florida Institute of Technology and got my doctorate in clinical psychology, did my internship at the University of Florida Health Center, and then my uh, postdoc in clinical health psychology at the uh, University of Florida Health Center. And I got into working with particularly pain patients, patients who had chronic pain condition. And all of our patients with um, inflammatory bowel disease were referred down into our pain clinic to work on the pain aspects. So I started doing some work there with patients who had um, chronic gastrointestinal disease that they couldn't manage the discomfort and um, ended up here at the Cleveland Clinic. This is actually my first job post postdoc at the Cleveland Clinic. Well, we're really pleased to have you here. And I, I guess I should set the tone for what we're going to talk about today. And I think we all understand that coronavirus has disrupted many of our listeners' daily lives. It's mm-hmm. uncertain, stressful times, a lot of people. And I guess my goal today is hoping that we'll provide listeners with a little bit of some ways that they can manage and cope their stress. And I should start off by saying thank you to all the listeners who are not only working in healthcare, but all of their communities and helping out those in need. And as COVID-19 continues to evolve. I just would like to remind all of our listeners that the Cleveland Clinic facilities and emergency departments were open. We're committing to keeping our patients safe, both with mental health and physical health and all of your needs and having our hospitals be amongst the safest places in the world to go to get your treatment. So let's dive into it with that kind of as as the canvas, if you will. What are the stages of stress? I just helped uh, co-author an article where we kind of discuss this in relation to COVID-19. So when we look at stress, when we look at the traditional idea of stress, there's kind of three stages that came out of what was the founder of like the idea of stress, um, Hans Seal's research, and it was alarm, resistance, and exhaustion. So alarm is the initial phase. He got this from doing some experiments on some animals. He was a physician and physiologist and realized that when animals were exposed to some noxious stimuli, they kind of went through these stages. Alarm is the fight or flight response. So that's the body's uh, sympathetic, the gas pedal kind of like 
getting you ready to either fight, flight, or freeze. And it dumps a whole bunch of chemicals and gets our body ready for that. Resistance is after that, our body, when the stressor doesn't go away, our body kind of adapts to it for a while. It is able to cope with the stressor. It's pretty adaptive. But then if the stressor doesn't go away after that, and the body eventually loses its ability to cope and starts to break down, and that's the exhaustion phase. So he saw that in animals, and we see it in humans too, to some extent. But then on top of that with humans, we also got to take in the cognitive pieces. And there's some pieces, because we're a thinking organism, complicate that a little more beyond that, because we have the ability to plan and judge and kind of come up with coping mechanisms. But those are generally thought of as the stages of stress. So as we take stress and kind of especially in these times, how can stress affect a person's digestive issues or otherwise health in general? It's really interesting when we look at human beings and the connection between the brain and the gut and how our gut responds to stress. They're hardwired together, the brain and the gut. And actually, some people would argue our gut experiences emotions before the brain. They're hardwired together in, like I was saying, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. That's called the brain-gut access. And now it's actually being extended to called the brain-gut microbiome access. But what goes on is because they're hardwired together, when that sympathetic nervous system starts going in the alarm phase, it starts to change the way the gut functions. So that's set up to direct blood away to the major organs when something bad's going on, a major stressor. And when that happens, the upper gut starts delaying the gastric emptying. Um, We see the gut motility start to slow down and the colon speeds up the motility. And so you can see that it actually changes physical function. But beyond that, We also know then that with pain and the uncomfortable sensations, stress amplifies them. So stress kind of like is dumping gasoline on some of the fires for some of our patients who have gastrointestinal disorders. It ups pain. It exacerbates everything that's there. So truth or myth, stress can cause digestive issues, A, like ulcers, and B, can stress cause IBD? That's a common myth. Let's start with inflammatory bowel disease. When we talk about stress and inflammatory bowel disease, we know that stress exacerbates it. Like I said, when I talk to my patients, I'm very clear. I don't want anybody to have the message that this is all in your head. Stress really is, like I said, dumping kind of like gasoline on the fire. It does not cause gastrointestinal disorders, but it does exacerbate them. We're not actually really clear on the exact cause of inflammatory bowel disease. We know it's a big combination of environmental and immune factors that come together and kind of lead to this. But when I start explaining it to patients, it's like there's lots of factors out there and stress is one of those factors. And it's a factor we have some control over. So we tend to spend a lot of time working on it. Because like I said, we know it exacerbates the symptoms. It can lead to other mental health problems, and that makes it much harder to cope with a lot of the symptoms. And if you look at something like an ulcer or inflammatory bowel disease or any of the gastrointestinal disorders, we know that they can be very hard to live with. And if you have a bunch of stress in there, that makes it much more difficult. 
like when I talk to my patients, I kind of make the joke sometimes. I go, is it easier to have, you know, all your symptoms and pain when you're sitting on the beach relaxing or when you've got a thousand things going on and you're under a lot of stress? And they all laugh and say, the beach. Because we know that, you know, it's just much easier to cope with them when we reduce stress. But it does not, it is not the specific cause of gastrointestinal disorders. So when you talk about patients or the public in general, in terms of how do you manage and cope with these times? I mean, what are some techniques that can help patients and, and again, public in general with just managing during these stressful times? And this is something I spend a lot of time talking to people about because it is stressful right now. And, you know, we look for the simple things we can do. So one of the things I talk to people about a lot of are what are the factors that we actually have control over? We're all, we all have this problem-solving mind, and it can tell us stories, and it kind of sits up between our ears and talks all day. But when we look at things, what are the things we actually have control over? So we'll work on, like, even little things like, turning off the news and not watching the news 24-7, even though we want to know what's going on, and that's our mind looking for information so we can plan and make some choices. You know, spending time with the people we love, that's something we've got some control over, and it tends to be very helpful. Uh, Doing exercise, making sure we're being physically active, even though that's hard in times of stress, we know it's very useful. And then, like I said, engaging the parasympathetic nervous system and we can do that pretty easily that's the braking system through some like breathing techniques so making sure we're doing good diaphragmatic breathing taking some time to actually when we breathe poke out make sure the belly comes out we're going to work on with kiddos i teach them to inflate the beach ball and then breathe out all the way and taking some time for that. Mindfulness meditation has been shown to be pretty helpful with us. So there's lots of things we can do that are pretty simple to help in, especially that first, the alarm stage. So the alarm stage, we're trying to bring down the sympathetic nervous system and activate the parasympathetic. So that's the calming system. So it's controlling the environment and doing like some diaphragmatic breathing, relaxation, and then the resistance phase going to doing some things to try to normalize everything that's going on. So maybe some mindfulness meditation, more relaxation, spending time with family and friends. And we've got to modify some of this right now because of COVID. It's easy to say, go spend time with family and friends. But we, I work with patients a lot of times on how can we do that and be socially distant and wear our mask and be safe. Are we doing FaceTime calls? with our family and friends, or are we doing it outside on a patio where we sit on one end and the other people sit on the other end? But doing these things tend to help a lot with the stress that goes along with something like COVID or any other stressors that are happening in the environment. So one of the hardest things that people sometimes have to do is admit that they're stressed for whatever reason, and then to seek out treatment where some of the techniques that you just talked about, uh, maybe they don't implement them or they don't work as well. And so let's just say that they have a visit to Cleveland Clinic's behavioral medicine program. What could a patient expect just in rough kind of overview during that time? So we're a little different at Cleveland Clinic. We have a psychogastroenterologist who's integrated into the care. So I am right there with all the physicians. And that's nice because when a patient comes in, any of the physicians that can see them, and that could be a colorectal surgeon or it could be um, a gastroenterologist treating IBS, 
or gastroenterologist treating someone for inflammatory bowel disease condition. If they see something that signals to them that behavioral health could be helpful, I'm right there and they can make a referral over to me. If someone gets referred to me, usually they'll get contacted by me first and I introduce myself. When they come in for the first visit, I introduce myself, go over what I do, who I am, and then we really spend a lot of time. I want to understand what that patient has been through, what's going on with them, what they've tried so far, what they've done as far as treatment, and then we start working on looking at exactly what we're talking about. How much are you exercising? What does your sleep look like? What does diet look like? What are you doing to manage stress? Are there any stressors going on right now that are pushing over the edge? And really trying to provide them the support, but then also figuring out, are there things in this picture of what's going on with this whole human being that we can change and help with? And then I work with that person to figure out what interventions might work. There's a whole toolbox full of interventions, like I was saying, relaxation, mindfulness, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, so working with the thoughts, increasing behavioral things, so exercise. And we've got to work with that patient to understand how that fits in their life and which things they could do that'll be helpful for them. And so that's what that first meeting's about. Then I'll usually work with someone between two and six visits, depending on the person, to figure out let's start implementing some of these things and seeing how they're working your life and what they're doing to symptoms, what they're doing to stress. And it's kind of nice being an embedded psychologist because I never really go away. I may work with someone and we may get stress under control. And let's say six months from now, something else pops up. They can call me back in and go, Dr. Loop, you know, I'd really like a follow-up visit with you. And we can start working on whatever's going on in this moment. And on top of that, you know, it helps to understand what's going on with the patient overall. I do a lot of talking to patients about how is what's going on with them affecting their life. And that really gives us a good picture of what's going on with this patient and why there may be other things that are contributing to disease processes going on. So psychosocial factors. Does the person have any social support? Are they able to make the changes? Are they being adherent to what the physician's prescribing to them? And we work on all these things to make sure that the patient's taken care of the best we can. You know, one of the things that I was struck by was the fact that nowhere in your first set of what you went to was, hey, I'm going to give you medications to deal with all of this stuff. That a lot of this stuff has to deal with, you know, working on the thoughts, working on the mindfulness, working on techniques to be able to relax and to incorporate all that. Yeah, absolutely. Like I tell my patients from the beginning, my goal is always that we learn a technique or learn a skill so you won't need me eventually. So it is definitely working on skills and lifestyle interventions. Um, that's not to say there's not a place for medications. I work very closely with the physicians I work with. And sometimes we do talk about medications, especially for modulating some of the ways that neurotransmitters affect the gut. The more research we do, the more we find out that the neurotransmitters that we think of in our brain actually affect the gut and they control a lot of the functioning of the gut. And so sometimes we'll use a medication for controlling some of that along with the benefits that it gets to anxiety reduction and depression reduction. Some of that does make it much easier for the patients I work with to do some of these lifestyle interventions as well. So there is a place for medication, but you're right. 
mostly what we work on is skills and interventions as far as lifestyle. And I think it's important to say that during this time, you know, we just talked about what to expect during a visit. It is very important to go to the doctor's office or hospitals for standard appointments and preventative screenings, taking care of yourself for critical issues. And, and if that is not a comfort level that you're out there and you're listening with, we absolutely do have virtual visit options that are open as well. So uh, some great, helpful hits. We always like to end up with some quick hitters with our guests and learn a little bit more about you. So First of all, what's your favorite food? Right now, it's stir fry. <laughs> I've been eating a lot of like vegetable stir fry. Fantastic. What's your favorite sport? My favorite sport is baseball. What is the last non-medical book that you've read? The last non-medical book I read was actually Born to Run. That's a great book. It's actually one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, that's uh, Caballo Blanco. I love it. Uh, and then uh, said you spent a lot of time in Florida, but what's something that you like about living here in the great city of Cleveland? I missed the seasons incredibly when I was in Florida. Florida was great for the first five years. It was summer for the first five years, but then I started missing the seasons and the leaves changing and it actually being cool. So I, I very much love the seasons in Northeast Ohio. So give us a final take-home message for our listeners out there regarding stress and coping mechanisms and just kind of sum this all up. Sure. I think the biggest take-home message that I try to drive with everybody is, you know, stress is a part of life. It's what happens. Life is stressful. And there are things we can do to help with that. And especially when we talk about patients with gastrointestinal disorder, stress, like I said, is not the cause of any of this, but it is a very big contributing factor to the distress that comes along with having being diagnosed and treating a gastrointestinal disorder. Make sure that you're talking to your providers, telling them what's going on, because a lot of times providers will have someone like me or know of someone like me. We do get referrals from even outside systems to me to help with some of the stress and learning some of these techniques. But it's really important. It's hard to talk about some of this stuff, and it's really important to make sure that you're telling your providers what's going on. That's fantastic and uh, just really good sage advice there. So for more information on Cleveland Clinic's behavioral medicine program, please visit clevelandclinic.org slash behavioral medicine. That's clevelandclinic.org slash behavioral medicine. And to speak with a specialist in the behavioral medicine program, please call 216-445-9552. That's 216 216- Four four five nine five five two, And for the most up-to-date information on COVID-19, including our appointment, visitor policies, and a lot of great information, please visit clevelandclinic.org slash coronavirus. That's clevelandclinic.org slash coronavirus. And please, again, uh, kind of a self-plug here, listen to our series on Butts and Guts podcasts on this disease. In times like these, it's more important to keep up with your medical care. And rest assured, here at the Cleveland Clinic, we're taking all the necessary precautions to sterilize our facilities and to protect our patients and make this the most safe place possible. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us on Butts and Guts. No problem. I enjoyed it. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts.